You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. And I know the COVID-19 crisis is changing a lot of plans that a lot of us had for this year. One of the things I was actually most looking forward to about this spring was having the opportunity to speak at the Montgomery County National Day of Prayer Prayer Breakfast. This is an event that happens in Maryland every year um, as part of a larger suite of programs that happen around the country. And like a lot of the different National Day of Prayer events that happened this year, this one had to become virtual instead. But I am grateful to the 17 different organizations that were coordinating it, that they, A, still wanted to have the event happen even virtually, and B, still wanted someone from the Center for Christian Civics to speak at it. So this week on the podcast, we're going to share the prayer that I offered up and the talk that I gave. This is about uh, getting our hearts out of the blame game, Uh, being aware of some of the habits that we might accidentally be building during this time of quarantine that would be counterproductive as we try to bring the gospel to bear in our civic lives when we exit this period of quarantine. As I say in the talk, if you're interested in diving more into this, we have a prayer and reflection exercise on our blog at christiancivics.org. It's also linked in the show notes of this episode. Feel free to pray along at the beginning and end of the talk. And I hope you all join us again next week. And so without further ado, it is my great pleasure to introduce Mr. Rick Barry. Thank you very much, Patrick. And I just want to reiterate what you said earlier and thank Paul and Chuck and the rest of the team for everything you've all done to schedule this. I know that you've been planning this since last year, and even just a couple months ago, none of us expected this event to have to happen virtually. And it would have been really easy to cancel or postpone, but I know that I think I really needed something like this today. I've been really blessed by the prayers everyone shared, and I'm guessing a lot of the other people on this call. Uh, have been as well. And I'm just grateful for the way you all committed to still making this happen. You are literally doing the Lord's work, and I'm grateful for it. Uh, Also to everyone who's still here after the breakout groups, uh, thank you for being part of this, for offering your prayers. This would be a really easy time to draw inward, uh, to worry about our own health, our own employment, our own household, The fact that you all are making the effort to be led in prayer by people you'll probably never meet, for people you'll probably never meet, is pretty generous. And whether that generosity is something you're deliberately cultivating and practicing, whether it's a spiritual discipline you're trying to grow in, or whether that generosity is kind of a natural result of the way God is forming you, either way, it's worth recognizing and it's worth praising God for. Uh, Now, I was told I have 20 minutes, but I know that uh, video conferences can get pretty tiring pretty quickly, and we're already already ahead of schedule. So I'll do my best to not uh, set us back. I want to honor our time and 
um, at the very least preserve the advances we've made, if not push them even further. Uh, in a couple minutes, I'm going to start talking about why it's important to serve our neighbors without blame or resentment when the quarantine is lifted. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to let you know, we actually have a prayer and reflection exercise up on our blog at christiancivics.org that you can use after this talk to put some of this into practice. And I just want to flag that for you now in case you're interested. Uh, one more thing to warn you about, my wife has told me I should give you a heads up that uh, when I get excited, I tend to seem angry, but I'm not, so don't be scared. If at any point I seem mad at you, I'm really not, I promise. Uh, now, before we get started, um, please take one more moment to pray with me again. Lord, when we don't know what to pray, you give us the words or the groans that are too deep for utterance. And once again this morning, we lean on the words you gave us through your prophet Habakkuk. Let the earth be filled with the knowledge of your glory as the waters cover the sea. We are cracked cisterns. We are broken vessels. We leak the things that we should retain, but you are a well of living water that doesn't run dry. Fill us faster than we leak and don't stop so that even as we leak, we can also pour out. We ask these things not for our own sake, but so that we can make the blessings of Jesus known, felt, and understood now so that when his kingdom comes, many more people will welcome it gladly because of the way they saw your people preparing for it now, during and in the wake of this present pandemic. Amen. All right. So for the last couple months now, I've been looking at the world through a video screen. One pastor I talked to last month told me that he's actually started dreaming in... Well, I'll move in there. I thought maybe you'd want to see it. Is everyone on mute? Um, yeah, one pastor I talked to about a month ago told me he's actually been dreaming in Zoom boxes, Brady Bunch style. And that's uh, worse than it's gotten for me, thank goodness. But still, unless I'm reading or talking with my wife, the crushing majority of my time right now is being spent staring at glowing rectangles. And the things I'm seeing in them are really hard to deal with. I have seen family laid off. I've seen friends intubated and friends widowed. I've seen obituaries for colleagues and mentors who aren't ever going to get a proper funeral. I've seen so many loved ones who work as doctors and nurses just broken down by the sheer weight of the work they're being called on to do. And that's just the stories and just the posts from the people I know personally sharing about their own lives. The memes are even worse. The news stories wear me down even more. It's nearly impossible for me to not be disappointed or frustrated or honestly not be angry right now. But the fact is, this pandemic is not going to last forever. One day, we're all going to be able to leave our homes without 
running the risk of infecting and killing our neighbors. And the way we are training ourselves to think, feel, speak, and act now will build habits that still shape our hearts, souls, minds, and actions when the threat of the virus has passed. All through the country today, people are getting together in similar gatherings like this one to pray for the same thing we're praying for, to pray for the knowledge of God's glory to fill the earth. And I think it's worth taking a moment right now to appreciate the fact that that's a tall order. No one here on this call, no one on any of those calls can actually make that happen. Even the most strategically well-placed evangelist is not capable of teaching the whole world about God's glory. For the world to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, every city, every town, every neighborhood has to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. That's why the church is scattered to every corner of the earth. That's why believers are sent into all the world. And that's why our actions, our habits, our hearts matter. When we pray for the world to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, what we're really praying for is for millions and millions of Christians all around the world to pour the knowledge of the glory of God out as we go through our day-to-day lives. But the way life is structured during this pandemic is going to make holding on to that knowledge very, very difficult. And that's why we have to train ourselves now. That's why we have to discipline our hearts, our minds, our spirits, and our lives. Most of our windows into the wider world right now are pretty skewed. Our news feeds are filled with articles and posts and memes that are designed or algorithmically curated to get strong reactions out of us. And the easiest reactions to get out of people are anger and fear. That was uh, true when I was working on campaigns 10, 15 years ago, and it's true now. It's a fact of our biology. And so a ton of our discourse is dedicated to explaining who to be angry at and who to be afraid of. And the thing is, if we want to look for someone to blame, if we want to find people to be angry at or afraid of, if we want to start making that list, we will never, ever reach the end of it. We will never do anything else. God has placed us in a country where The authority, the identity, the legitimacy of the state derives from the body politic. We're part of a 300 million person committee that's responsible for hiring, reviewing, firing, and incentivizing our public officials, starting with the earliest days of their first campaign for their lowest office. That means every one of us shares some of the blame for the failures of public administration that have led to uh, poor public health practices or poor economic preparedness. Breaking this 300 million person committee down into smaller and smaller groups and analyzing the unique ways each group contributed to this crisis is just a vortex. It's a time suck. We'll never run out of new data or new examples that highlight how different people shoulder different aspects of the blame will never run out of tragedies to mourn, injustices to rage against, or sin to denounce, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Assigning blame like that can be satisfying, but there's a better way for us. 
it can make the world seem knowable or it can make our sin seem smaller compared to the sin of others, but we have a better way. Neurologically, it is actually borderline addictive, but there's a better way. And it's a trap that we better run away from if we want to serve our king faithfully because Jesus sidestepped the blame game. We're running the race set before us with our eyes fixed on a king who dedicated himself to assuming responsibility rather than assigning blame. And that's the race we have to run. In John 9, his disciples asked him, Lord, who sinned that this man was born blind? And he replied, you're missing the point. His blindness is an opportunity for me to heal. Who thinks that way? Looking at the world like that doesn't come naturally to us in the best of times. And when this pandemic is over, it will not be the best of times. When we step back out of our homes, we'll be stepping into neighborhoods with less money, fewer jobs, more grief, greater need than most of us has, have ever seen. Suffer, seeing suffering as an opportunity for Jesus to heal is going to be harder than it has ever been. He's blind so that I could heal him, Jesus said. And then in the same breath, the rest of that sentence is, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. I want to say that again. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. We. Wow. We must do this work. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to live up to that calling, I'm going to need to build better habits right now. If we're going to make a deliberate effort to step out of the blame game, we need to take the Bible seriously when it warns us to take every thought captive. We have to take the Bible seriously when it warns us about our tongue's power to lure us into cursing people who are made in the image of God. That's hard to do. And in American Christian culture, we've come up with a really genius way of avoiding it. We have a devious way of letting ourselves gossip about whose sin made that man blind. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord in Deuteronomy and in Romans. But when we feel vengeful, that's okay because we're just pointing out how God's vengeance is going to be applied. After all, Jesus denounced the Pharisees and drove out the temple profiteers. He also warned his followers to tend to the log in our own eye before we start trying to fish the splinter out of someone else's eye. But that doesn't apply to us because when we assign blame, we're just pointing out the modern day Pharisees and profiteers, right? We're just being prophetic. That's the word we use, prophetic. That's how we get around it. And it's okay to be a prophet because in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that some are apostles and some are prophets and some are healers and some are teachers and some are servants and some are miracle workers, right? But if that's the case, why does it seem like there are so many more prophets than healers or teachers or servants or miracle workers? It's really easy to get comfortable acting like prophets when maybe we should be apostles or healers instead. We tell ourselves that we're standing up for the truth and the truth will set us free, but we're actually missing the point of what being prophetic means. I know that a lot of us are cooking a lot more right now than we ever have before, so let me put it this way. Denouncing things that are wrong 
is only one ingredient in the prophetic pantry. The Old Testament prophets did denounce things that were wrong in their society, yes, but they didn't stop there. They also offered solutions. They also often worked to implement those solutions. They also reminded people of God's past faithfulness. They also reminded people of God's future promises. They also sacrificed their own dignity, their own respectability, their own honor to demonstrate God's faithfulness, like Jonah and Ezekiel and Hosea. And when they did this, they actually made a public record of their own humiliation for the sake of uh, praising God's glory. If each book of prophecy in the Bible is a recipe, there are no single ingredient recipes in the Bible, except for one. Uh, There is one single ingredient recipe in the books of the prophets, but that ingredient isn't outrage or anger or denouncing things that are wrong. The one ingredient that's so important and so rich that it gets a whole book of the Bible all to itself is lamentation. You can just sit there and see the brokenness of the world and cry in public and still be prophetic. But if the only thing we're offering the people around us is blame or outrage, then we aren't being prophetic because that's not all the prophets did. I don't know what we're doing when we do that. Maybe we're satisfying our own desire to be right, or maybe we're trying to get the praise of other people by being seen as being right, or maybe we're trying to deflect blame from people we like or explain away things that confuse us or don't fit with our ideology so that we can feel better about it. Whatever we're doing when we play the blame game, it betrays what it means to be prophetic. And it's an ungodly habit that will make us bad witnesses. Search my heart and know me, God. Show me the false ways in me. Show me the ways that I'm fooling even myself and lead me in a better way. We should be thanking God every day that he gave us those words in the Psalms. And even if we are being honestly and faithfully and holistically prophetic, 1 Corinthians doesn't end at chapter 12. Some people might be apostles, some people might be prophets, some people might be healers, some people might be miracle workers. But then chapter 13 goes on to say that Christians get to do something even better than any of that. We get to love. Who cares about miracles or prophecy if they aren't being made complete by acts of love. Speaking prophetically is empty. The same book that calls prophecy and mountain-shifting miracles empty if they're not backed up by acts of love. Seeing the kingdom that is to come and describing it to people, that's one thing. That's a word of prophecy. But we're called to do more than that. We're called to demonstrate what it looks like to trust that that kingdom is going to come demonstrate what it looks like to be secure in that kingdom's promises, no matter what the threats of the world might seem to be, no matter what the suffering that's being inflicted on us is. We're called to be eager to give people foretastes of how wonderful that kingdom will be. I mentioned Jonah a couple minutes ago. Second Kings 14 tells us that Jonah spent most of his prophetic career as a military advisor. And this was during a period of prolonged military conflict with Assyria. And then later in his career, when 
His head was bald enough that he could get sunburned on it by sitting out for too long. God sent him as an agent of mercy. And he sent him as an agent of mercy to the Assyrian city of Nineveh, the people he had dedicated his entire career, an entire successful career, to hating and defeating. In Matthew 12, some of the scribes and the Pharisees say to Jesus, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And Jesus answers, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and no sign will be given to them except the sign of Jonah, who is in the belly of the fish for three days, just as the Son of Man will be in the earth for three days. And this is the key part. He goes on to say, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn this generation because the people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let that sink in for a second. The people of Nineveh will stand at the final judgment and condemn the people who thought they were God's favorite because the Ninevites humbled themselves and repented at the word of their enemy. Jesus said that, and then he washed the feet of the man who would betray him. He said that, and then he broke bread with the fair-weather friends who would fall asleep when he needed them, run away when he was in danger, and swear they didn't know him when it was inconvenient for them. You get no sign except the sign of Jonah, said the man who was about to pray for mercy for the people who were killing him. It's easy to look out for ourselves. It's easy to look out for our neighbors when we live next door to people whose best interest is also usually our best interest. But part of living out the sign of Jonah is going to be having soft hearts toward the needs of people we don't like or toward the needs of people whose well-being might not have anything to do with our well-being. Letting our hearts be softened is real work, and that work has to start now. It starts with asking God and asking other Christians who our Ninevites are, and then confessing and repenting and learning how to care for their needs just as much as we advocate for our own. And again, we have a prayer and a reflection guide on our blog at christiancivics.org that can help you get started, but you should know now that This kind of reflection, this kind of change, this kind of work is not glamorous. It's not satisfying. It's not the kind of thing that makes us good culture warriors. It's not the kind of thing that makes us reliable partisans. It's not the kind of thing that makes us angry and reliable voters. But as Christians, it is our job. To love our neighbor is our greatest commandment. And Jesus's parable of the Jericho Road reminds us that our neighbor isn't the person who lives closest to us or the person whose needs and interests line up with ours. The parable of the Good Samaritan and the Jericho Road reminds us that our neighbor is the person who needs us. In Genesis, Cain asked, am I my brother's keeper? But the authors of the New Testament didn't call Cain the author and perfecter of our faith. In Luke 15, the proverbial elder brother brought shame on his father by not going out and finding the prodigal son. But we aren't called to keep our eyes fixed on the elder brother. We are called 
to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who had every right to consider us his enemies, but divested himself of that right so that he could come to us as a servant. When we encounter neediness and brokenness in this world, when we encounter sickness and negligence and death and selfishness and unfairness and gossip and abuse and greed and other manifestations of sin, it's good to be revulsed by them. If we aren't revulsed, our hearts are malfunctioning and we're accepting sin. But if we experience that revulsion and our first response, our deliberate response, is to meditate in our hearts over whose fault it is or to daydream about who we'd like to see bear the cost of fixing it, then we're ignoring the call to be part of Jesus's healing work. We have to prepare for this hard work now by deliberately inviting God to make our stone hearts into flesh now, before the test comes. We serve a God who didn't assign blame. He took on responsibility. We serve a God who gave up everything to clean up our mess, a mess he didn't make. The only faithful way to live when the new normal sets in is to make it our job to do the same thing for others. Thank you very much. Um, Pray with me one last time, and then I'll hand it back over to Patrick. Lord Jesus, you were in very nature God, but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, and instead took on the form of a servant. We are in a difficult time right now where The best thing a lot of us can do to love our neighbors is stay home and not risk getting people sick. But while we do that, we are being conditioned by the world to think in ways that are ungodly, to think in ways that are angry or that assign blame or that are self-centered and self-aggrandizing. And we don't want to be angry, self-centered, self-aggrandizing people when we are able to leave our homes again. Being those kinds of people mean not being your kinds of people. We ask you to search our hearts, know us, show us the false ways in us, and lead us in the way of life everlasting. And we thank you that even when we are so tired and dispirited, you have given us faithful words to pray. Even during this time when we are being conditioned by the world to, and being discipled by the world, to think in a manner that is unworthy of you. You've given us the ways to pray that will bring us out of it. And you've given us opportunities like this to lean on the prayers of others when we can't lean on the prayers ourselves. Thank you for interceding for us. Thank you for praying for us at all times. And thank you for the guarantee that this present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Thank you for the guarantee that even though right now we do the things we hate and can't do the things we love, we will one day be made perfect. We pray these things in your name for your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you you so much, Rick, and and for that good word. We seek to become more like Christ. We emerge from all of this. Uh, And with that, I will pass it to my good friend and the 